Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest is Haim Simon. He's a professor of law at Villanova University. He's a scholar of Jewish law, insurance law, and private law. His scholarship has appeared in numerous journals. A few years back, he wrote a piece entitled The Halakha Trial of Jesus for First Things, a Journal of Religion and Public Life. It discusses the sole piece of Talmud that discusses the trial and death of Jesus. It's a fascinating piece, and we had a great conversation about it and about Jewish-Christian relations today. I give you Chaim Simon. Chaim, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Great to be back. Last time we were, like, I was actually at the beautiful Villanova campus. I'm actually not there. We're doing this remotely, but um, this is very exciting to talk with you. And on, uh, during a, it, it whole, it's, it's just like a doubleheader uh, week of holiness uh, in, in the Judeo-Christian realm, right? They don't always fall Passover and uh, Easter, Good Friday, and these things don't always fall so close together. Uh, they don't always. They, they used to. Um... But uh, I believe in the uh, third or fourth century, there was a movement within uh, Christian circles to uh, detether them. Uh, there was a sect that, I guess in English, they call it the Quarter de Messians, which means the 14thers, because they thought that Easter should always be based on the, uh, on the date of Passover. But uh, you have to talk to an expert in Christian history to know the story of that. But I, did, I do recall reading that. And then they got detethered, and it has to do with the Jewish leap year and the, and the, uh, and the, uh, the secular leap year about whether they fall out uh, together or not. If you were on Jeopardy and Judeo-Christian holiday dating came up, would you feel good? I mean, would you feel pretty confident? I mean, you know, it depends who the other contestants were. If they were like, you know, second century scholars, I'd probably lose. If they're, you know, people who know American history, I'd win. There's a guy that was put on the podcast before, Tom Nichols. He's written, he's a national security expert, but he's a five-time Jeopardy winner. Uh, I have a colleague uh, um, here who, uh, Kathy Langta, who is a Jeopardy winner, but I'm I'm not, I don't, I'm not good at that stuff. He said that the key is you learn after you win once or twice, you have a big advantage because you learn, don't look at Trebek. Look at the, he's like, your rookies are always looking at t- Trebek. Too long. You just look at the lights. Got it. <laughs> so there you go. Well, there's your holiday Jeopardy information. So you, you wrote a piece a couple of years ago for First Things, which is a sort of, it's a religion, a journal of religion and public life, uh, which tends to be. You know, more conservative and, you know, has ecumenical contributors. And and, and, and Catholic. Uh, yeah, it's Catholic. Yeah, it is. It's Roman Catholic. Although they, although they do have, sure, uh, you know, a variety of, of contributors, of course, like in, in, you know, they'll, you know, from all sorts of, from Christian and Jewish circles. And I'm, trying to think, I'm trying to think if they've had secular folks write for them or not. I'm not sure. But you wrote a piece uh, a couple of years ago, a really interesting piece called The Halakhic Trial of Jesus. And in it, you talk about a little bit about a Talmudic piece uh, 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 that actually relates this a story about the trial of Jesus, right? That's right. That's right. So, well, it's actually really appropriate for this year because this year, both, uh, as you said, both Easter and Passover not only fall together, but uh, but they fall out the way uh, it's portrayed in the Gospels, which is that... Uh, you know the uh, the eve of Passover was Friday, so meaning the first day of Passover was was a Sabbath, Shabbat, which means that um, whatever happened uh, was on Friday, right before both Shabbat and Passover, and such that Easter Sunday was was just immediately after that. Um, so the way it falls out this year is the way it, it's described. So it's a it's particularly relevant to, to this year. And and this is a, a piece that you wrote that generated. Uh, it's fair to say, right? A, a, a tad bit of controversy. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. So we should back up. Um, when I talk to you know particularly Christian friends who don't know a whole lot about the Talmud, uh, it's often asked, "Well, you know, what is the?" No, Talmud? I, I, I would think that's got to be about eighty-five percent of your Christian friends. Although <laughs> you aren't a law school, and maybe okay, but, but I would guess that that's not a, that's not a really elite club. Right, no, but but you know, I often ask, well, what does the Talmud say about Jesus? And and the most in- important answer, I think, is to say, hey, not that much, um, given that it's you know at least parts of it are if not exactly the same time around the same time, if not exactly the same area around the same area. You know, most of the Talmudic texts are a little bit later than uh, than when Jesus lived, though. Certainly, certainly, some of the rabbis, the early rabbis, mentioned in the Mishnah 
are contemporaries of Jesus, more or less. But um, the Talmud doesn't actually say much uh, about him. But but one of the stories that is about him, or this little pericope, a little little narrative about him, uh, has to do with the the de- the trial and death of Jesus. Yeah, and you know, you and I talked about this a little bit. Oftentimes, you you explain to me that the Talmud sometimes takes historical narratives and actually reimagines them for the purpose of of legal commentary. Right? They're they're not so much concerned about uh, relaying a, a sort of picture that you could go back in time and capture with your iPhone eight plus video feature or whatever. But they're they're actually taking the story and kind of re reimagining it and reimagining legal relevant legal situations that can be discussed and learned from. That's right. So, it, you know, it's hard to give one description for everything, but clearly there is material in the Talmud that is much more didactic than historical. Clearly there's material in the Talmud that is, you know, historical. And then there's a lot of stuff that we might not know how to classify. And different Jewish interpreters and commentators over the years have themselves differed about what do you take literally, what do you take figuratively, et cetera. So to me, an example of something that's obviously figurative is uh, the Talmud will talk about the, the villain from the story of, of the Book of Esther, Haman, uh, engaging in a technical halachic discussion legal Jewish law discussion with Mordecai uh, about something or the other. And I don't think anybody really thinks that, you know, Haman was well-versed in, in, in the narr- in the details of Jewish law, but it's a way of making a point. Um, it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't just as, 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 as an adversary. He wanted to just get to know them. <laughs> he had to know them better. <laughs> I mean, maybe, right. That's just always hard. Is that, no, I don't know. I wasn't there, but you know, there's not yeah. a lot to uh, not 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 a lot to kind of give you a sense of that, and then the Talmud often has either stories that appear in other sources, but it tells them differently, or reworks stories. So there's a sense that at least some Talmudic material is being reworked, not so much for the uh, historical narrative as for like the point that it's serving within the Talmud, and. I think that's a credible way to approach uh, the story of the death of Jesus in the Talmud. Now, it's been controversial because, and this is sort of what, what caught me about the piece, is that we're living in a time where, if we think from a historical perspective, we have a role reversal. Um, you know, since the, the Gospel of, of Matthew, um, which basically blames the Jews for what later comes to be called deicide, the death of Jesus, and then Shortly thereafter, you know, second, third century, uh, we start seeing charges of this. And uh, then certainly when we move throughout the Middle Ages, you know, what Christians call Holy Week and Good Friday was always a scary time. Passion plays and things like that often um, would 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 end in violence uh, towards Jews, and this was this was. There's no, nothing that, no, nothing like a uh, n- nothing is a more befitting tribute to the nonviolent Jesus than a little <laughs> bit of mass violence during Holy that's, Week, right? I mean, there yeah, you go. That's right. There That's you go, right. and and I think that you know that stems from a certain reading of of Matthew, and then the tradition that that uh, that unfolds. Uh, you know, we know that that uh, Bishop Melito of Sardis had a had a pretty uh, harsh kind of Easter sermon uh, around these themes, and that that tradition definitely carried forward. Uh, and then you know, so so Jews obviously were not highlighting and denouncing any any uh, involvement in the death of Jesus, whereas in that period, uh, at least some strands of Christianity were, were actively promoting it. And then when we get to you know the post-World War II period, the last, let's say, two, three generations, we get a really interesting uh, difference. On the Christian side, you know, Vatican II, and then in its wake, a variety of uh, Protestant denominations all wrote statements that in one way or another say, you know, the Jews are not responsible for the death of Jesus, or the Jews are not responsible more than anyone else for the death of Jesus. We shouldn't think of deicide as being a kind of collective punishment on the Jews eternally. Really, uh, you know, abjuring the theology that that had been uh, presented for 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 centuries uh, in certainly in, in Christian uh, Europe, and then um, in the past, I would say twenty twenty five years. Um, Jewish book publishers have been reissuing the Talmud, but now with 
the excerpted or censored out bits about Jesus put back in. So not all of them have, and some of them put it on the margins of the page, and some of them put it in different font. But one way or another, these texts which were censored, and it's unclear whether they were self-censored by Jews or censored by the church or some combination, but they clearly were censored and hidden and not published with the entire Talmud, are now re-emerging. So I was interested in like, oh, this is kind of an interesting situation where now all of a sudden the Jews are saying, well, we've got this text about the death of Jesus in the, in the Sanhedrin, in the Talmud, and for centuries we submerged this or it was submerged for us, and we're now kind of publishing this, whereas uh, the Christian community is now kind of coming the other way. And that says a lot about how you know Jewish-Christian relations have, have changed, uh, both in America what that has to do with the state of Israel and sort of where we are today, which of course I think is a much better place. So that's kind of what, what sparked my interest of this, like this, this sort of reversal. And then I started thinking about uh, what this story is and what it means and, and how it fits into other discussions we're having both historically, theologically, and contemporarily. You know, it's interesting because there's, there are parallel things like this in the New Testament. For instance, John 8 can not be found. Where it, the story in John 8 where Jesus, uh, the, 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 he comes across this woman caught in adultery and everybody's ready to stone her and Jesus writes. I think the only time we catch Jesus writing in the gospel, writes something in the sandwich, we don't know. And then, you know, he says, you know, let him who has no sin throw the first stone. Of course, everybody walks away and he says, you know, go and uh, do I condemn, you know, I don't condemn you either. Go and send it more. But that wasn't in the earliest manuscripts of John that we have. And people debate, was it that it was added in or was it that this is a little too light on family values <laughs> and we've got to keep that out, you know, but, but there seems to be, it seems to be, you know, there's debate on whether it was added in or censored out and then re-added. So, I mean, these kind of, these kinds of things happen in both traditions sure, with, with, sure. with textual texts. And there's always a question, you know, when you're dealing with an ancient text like the Talmud about what the text says and what it is, and there are different manuscripts before it comes to print. But particularly stories about Jesus were actively censored. And as I would say, there's always mistakes and differences that creep up over the centuries. Remember, we're talking about people copying by hand um, in the in the pre-printing world. But all that is on steroids when there are active forces, and sometimes I mean forces in, in the in the literal sense of the term, that are, that are suppressing these texts. So once they're hidden and then sometimes changed, so there's theories that sometimes the Talmud will speak in code by using like a, you know, a, a, a pseudonym or something like that. And, 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 and so it's hard to know. Also, there's a famous story, a disputation that happened in Barcelona in the 1260s uh, between an apostate Jew and in Hebrew, we call him Ramban. In English, he's sometimes known as Ahmanides, the, the leader of Barcelonan jury. And uh, of course, this wasn't designed to be a fair fight. This was designed to kind of disprove Judaism. And you know, if you win, you lose, and if you lose, you lose. And there, and it's uh, like the kid. That's like the kid, right? Who's the first one that has to wrestle a, a female wrestler in high school, like on the other team? <laughs> like you know, if if she wins, you lose. If you uh, you know, if you win, you lose. You know, yeah, like I don't think anyone has ever made that analogy between the disputation in Barcelona, but I'll go with it. Um, so, so when when these texts or this bit of Talmud is brought up uh, to Nachmanides, he says, "Oh, that's not talking about Jesus of Nazareth, the Christian. That's some other guy named Yeshua or Yeshua." So, you know, I think from 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 our you know eight, at least eight hundred years ago, we already have discussions about is this about Jesus? Is this about not? Is this a pseudonym? Is this not? Is this accurate? Is this not? So, I think that's just always part of these texts. I think what we can do today is look at them and kind of you know consider different uh, different ways of interpreting. And why you know okay, it it, it makes sense to me that. If it you know if it was self censored that would make sense to me because why give Christians material you know why why mention even the trial of Jesus in a particular Jewish context you know when it's clear that the Roman authorities had the responsibility for execute for you know executing the sentence and things like this you know but you there there has been response in you writing about this right where people there were there have been Jewish readers and people on in the you know receiving what you've written uh, quite critically, right? I mean, th thinking that this is a dog that's better left lying. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, 
before this was published, a, a draft kind of traveled into the hands of a fairly well-known and important rabbi in Brooklyn who then reached out to me and basically said, it's prohibited to publish this. Um, it's prohibited to discuss this. You're just going to stir up hatred amongst the Gentiles. And I think, you know, he has since passed, um, but very much reflecting, I think, a, a traditional Jewish view of how, you know, how we ought to view this, really reflecting the long uh, and not so happy uh, European experience. And I think that's what that uh, rabbi was channeling. And he thought, like, how could you possibly do this and, you know, awake, awake lions better left sleeping or something like that. Um, so, yeah, there was some critical uh, response and, and, and we could talk about that. But maybe we should uh, just for the audience kind of talk about what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, process. yeah. Like, give it right. Yeah. Run us through. Basically, give us the 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 summary of this Talmudic piece, you know, sure. what, so it's what's a pretty important. short piece and it says as follows, and I obviously doing this in translation. And again, uh, just to preface what the exact text is, 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 is not a hundred percent clear. There's a great book by Peter Schaefer, uh, uh, put out, I believe by Princeton about eh, probably about 10 years ago called Jesus in the Talmud that, that goes through all the, the text and its reception and all that. So anyone interested can definitely take a look at that. But, you know, it says something like on the eve of, on the eve of Sabbath, that's the eve of Passover, um, which, you know, would be Friday, uh, Jesus the Nazarene was hung. And then it says that a crier went out before him 40 days, proclaiming that Jesus the Nazarene will be stoned because he practiced sorcery and instigated and seduced Israel to idolatry. Whoever knows anything in his defense may come and state it. But since they did not find anything in his defense, they hung him on Sabbath Eve and the eve of Passover. That's, uh, that's the Talmud. Uh, and that's really cited in the Talmud, not for really the purpose of discussing Jesus, but in the way the Talmud often does is to, to, to use for its own legal, legal context. And the issue is that if in that story, it said that the crier went out 40 days before. And what that means is sort of like, you know, our equivalent would be for 40 days before they, they, um, advertise in the newspaper or online or whatever saying, you know, so-and-so is going to be sentenced. Uh, does anybody have any exculpatory evidence? Uh, and that's, that's kind of the point of that. Um, and then the Talmud set, seems to suggest that, well, you know, you typically get that one day before or maybe during the time, but, but where does this 40 days come from? So it says, wait, why does he get 40 days? And then it says, wait, but why should Jesus get, get a crier at all? He was a, a, a particular type of he was charged with a particular type of crime it's called in hebrew may someone who who um pushes people towards idolatry and false belief who instigates them towards that and that's like the one exception to this rule that doesn't get this uh protection of due process and then the Talmud answers, well, you're right, maybe he shouldn't have, but uh, it says, rather, the case of Jesus was different, for he was close to the governing authorities. So there's some exception for why he has a special due process. And that's kind of where the Talmud leaves and then goes off to discuss other issues. So as you see, it's not really interested in the story. It kind of comes uh, on the by. But maybe we'll kind of explain, uh, you know, kind of what's going on there. And forty is a pretty significant biblical number, right? Forty years, forty days, like the it, it's it's a big chunk of time. It's a big chunk of time. It's a big rabbinic number too, not just biblical. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah. is so they're saying that this is you know the the time that you know uh, you know was it the ark is out for forty days, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So yeah. this is this is a long, long period of significant time. Yeah, so we we, we ought to talk about kind of what what's going on here uh, in a in a couple ways. So obviously, different from the Gospels, no Romans, no Pilate. Um, you know, not only the trial happens to the Sanhedrin, but the Sanhedrin here is is seen as being the the executing body. So that's kind of you know the the, the big the big sort of deal uh, here. Uh, the other differences, of course, and the way I got into this, and here we have to. We have to think of two lines of scholarship that exist within both historical studies and Jewish studies and how they cross. So, of course, anything having, you know, just given the size and interest in the Christian world, uh, anything having to do with Jesus and Judaism, the, the Second Temple era, the late Second Temple era, is all, has long been of interest for scholars and historians, Jews and Christians, and certainly anything having to do with Jesus. So there's that whole line of scholarship. And then there's some like another line of scholarship running in parallel, which has to do with the history and really maybe might say the historicity 
of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the uh, Greek word, but kind of Hebrewified, of the great court that sat in Jerusalem. And the Mishnah describes this great court um, in, in a lot of detail, and the Talmud then expands upon that. And historians of that period have long, let's just say, questioned the historical accuracy of the Mishnaic descriptions of it, particularly as it relates to capital punishment, because here's what happens, and here's the background for the text read. And there's something very, very strange about how uh, Jewish law describes its own mode of capital punishment. Anyone who reads the Bible knows that lots of people are subject to the death penalty. Um, by the time you filter through the Mishnah, and particularly the Talmud, it is basically impossible to get the death penalty. To use modern words, there's so much procedural due process that must be exhausted uh, before someone can be uh, formally sanctioned to the death penalty by the Sanhedrin that it never happened. So, in fact, the Mishnah itself says, one rabbi said, or one pe- group of people said, a Sanhedrin that executes someone every seven years is called a bloody Sanhedrin. And then another pair of rabbis say, every 70 years is bloody. And then the third pair of rabbis said, had we been on it, it never would have happened. So what's going on there? There's a bunch the, of things. The, that, but, they would not be the Texas Sanhedrins. <laughs> that would not be the Texas Sanhedrin, no. <laughs> and then, of course, this being the Mishnah, there's a fourth opinion that says, you guys are all just uh, you know increasing crime and bloodshed amongst the people because there's no deterrent effect. Now, what are the particular deterrents? So there's a lot of them, but 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 maybe the most dramatic one that I talk about in the piece is that you have to the the, the criminal has to basically be warned that the act that he or she is about to do carries the death penalty, and then within seconds of that warning has to verbally assent and says yes I know and that's why I'm doing it, and you know if if that and there's other requirements but we could just focus on that is missing then according to Talmudic law you don't get executed. So then, like, well, how's anyone ever getting executed? So that's a question. And, and again, that's a question of that kind of intersection between the historical record, the Talmudic record. So and can I just say, how many, how many, how many rabbis and how many Jews in diaspora? I'm, I'm assuming a lot of these are diaspora Jews writing and commenting like over the centuries. Over the centuries, sure. Sure. I mean, how many actually had participated in this kind of civil authority? Were oh, they? None. Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So this is kind of yeah, this, ide- is, this, is this is ideal is, case law, right? This is like, this is it, yeah, that's what the Talmud is. It's ideal case law, um, and it's not even clear at what level it's ideal. Is it like ideal is in the perfect one? Ideal is like an imagined one. Ideal is like a a, a historical memory that no longer exists that was accurate. So these are very hard questions that rabbis and scholars uh, debate. But when we come to the execution of the Sanhedrin. So you really you realize pretty quickly that it's almost impossible to execute someone. And what interested me, so that issue has been studied. And the, the, in rabbinic literature, the Talmud and its kind of related literature, there's there's five, four or five, depending on how you count, cases uh, where someone seems to be killed or executed by Sanhedrin. And the Talmud then asks, well, how are they executed? I mean, didn't they follow these rules? And in each one, it kind of gives a qualifying answer. Sometimes it says, well, in that case, the Sanhedrin didn't follow the rules properly. Or they say, in another case, you're right, it wasn't really uh, legally correct, but it was it was needed for the for the for the uh, needs of the hour, kind of an extrajudicial sort of killing. So in all of them, it kind of qualifies it. And what interested me was exactly in this way that it happens with Jesus, where we have this story, but the story doesn't fit the legal regime. And then there's some kind of tug of war of how to get it to, to coalesce with the legal regime. But but then what's interesting is that it has the same pattern, except here it's the, it's different. Whereas in all the other cases, what the what the result is that really legally, as a formal law matter, uh, the person should not have been executed, but for some extraneous reason, uh, they were more strict upon that person than he was. In this case, it kind of goes the opposite. They say, really, Jesus should have been executed. And then they say, why did he get this due process? And they say, well, for some extraneous reason, like he was close to the government, which 
can mean a lot of different things. And then I got really interested. I said, you know, wait a minute. How come no one's ever talked about this? In other words, everything about the trial of Jesus has been discussed in the scholarship and the history for a long, long time. Everything about the history of the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin's capital punishment jurisdiction has been discussed for a long, long time. And now we put these two together and we have the story of Jesus. And if you think about it, and this is kind of what I'm getting at in the article, it turns out that the only person that the Sanhedrin killed according to the strict letter of the laws internal to the Talmudic understanding of the Sanhedrin, is Jesus. And I'm like, how's that possible? How come no one's talked about this? And then I said, well, and what does that mean? Why is the Talmud telling us this? What are they trying to say? Especially in light of all the historical problems, whether from the Gospels or internal to the Talmud itself, that the Sanhedrin lost capital jurisdiction, and you know everything we know from the Roman sources. So why would they be reaching out to quote take credit for something that you know at least from other sources seems wouldn't have happened? And especially in light of all the all the uh, difficulties it generated, probably then and certainly later on. And in the article, I speculate, and that's all it is. But I think I think it's at least worth thinking about that what might be going on here is something like a reappropriation. Is recapturing a narrative. So the Jews are living and everyone is blaming them for the death of Jesus and for deicide and all the all the negative things that, that come out of there. And and my sense is maybe what they're saying is, well, let's go back to Jesus had a critique of the Pharisees and a critique of maybe not the Talmud as a book, but we might call Talmudism and and the sort of law-centric way that Jesus is often criticizing the Talmud often inhabits. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more. It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress. Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Michael Butera, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Andrew Stravitz, and Jennifer Underwood. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. And you've written in other places on this too about about right. the interpretation of, of of the law by Jesus and Jesus as legal theorist. And this has struck you right in your research on this that when you look at Christian political and legal theorists, they write a lot about the interpretive tradition, but many don't spend a lot of time on actually how did Jesus deal with the law. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So so I got really uh, interested in this, and I said, well, maybe here's what the Talmud is doing. If Jesus is if one if basically his critique was that you guys or your forerunners are focused on all the legal technicalities of the law, but forget the justice, the mercy, right? And you let the law overtake those things. That's that's certainly a strong line of critique that Jesus has against the Pharisees. So the Pharisees are kind of, or, or the Talmud is kind of responding. You say, actually, if you really understand the law, the law of the Sanhedrin, you know that everybody has a way out. No one's ever actually convicted and killed. Why? Because that's what the law requires. But there's only one person who we're going to record as being killed by the Sanhedrin according to its laws. And that's Jesus, precisely to show that the person who thought the law couldn't save you is the person who the law won't save, whereas everyone else the law does save. And that was my 
understanding of, of my reading of how to understand this, this strange piece of Talmud that doesn't really fit in with the Talmud itself, doesn't really fit in with the history. What are they trying to do? And I think that what they're trying to do is they're sort of winking and saying, we understand Jesus' critique, but we're going to like judo move it and say, yeah. The law, actually, if you understand it and read it right, can save you. In fact, it saves everybody. In fact, there's no other case of someone who's killed according to the law. There's only one. And who is that? The person who denied the law's ability to provide justice and mercy. So it sounds like this is a a, a, a Talmudic argument that comes about as a result of, it seems like, at least a couple centuries of dialogue, received interpretation of Jesus, and probably Paul especially, too, that these rabbis are familiar, deeply familiar with the Jesus and sort of the Pauline critiques of of uh, right, so my, re- my reading would assume that. Now, we don't know. It's just hard to know when is exactly this written. When does it come about? If you remember when we read it, there's actually a few layers. There's the story itself and then the kind of gloss on that story. So clearly those are from different times. Um, you know, this is in the Babylonian Talmud. But it's talking about events and people that happened uh, in Israel, which is not uncommon. But again, that raises a lot of these questions that historians of the Talmudic era uh, think about. So I don't think this is history. I don't think that's its point. I think of this as a reappropriation. Now, to go to where you were before. So when the rabbi said, how are you saying this? You know, how are you publicizing this? My reaction was, look, anyone who Googles online, Jesus and the Talmud, Jews killed Jesus Talmud, is going to find this in two seconds. Um, it's out there. And this has been out in the, you know, in the, both in the scholarly discourse and in the anti-Semitic discourse for at least 200 years. I'm trying to explain why someone would say this and what it's doing and to say it's an internal Jewish reflection of how to deal with a world in which these things are being thrown at you all the time. And therefore, my view is rather than raise the flames, I'm actually offering an account for it, especially now that the Jews themselves are printing uh are are reprinting these stories and in a world where the Christians have changed their theological outlook on the responsibility of the Jews for this. So that was my view. That was not this uh, rabbi's view. Uh, I then uh, wrote to another rabbi, one that I'm closer with and presented the case before him and asked him what he thought. And he wrote me back a fascinating in Hebrew. Well, in Hebrew, we call it a a tshuva, but sort of the the Latin word for that is a response to like basically a legal opinion. Uh, where he said that, well, he did suggest that I change the title and tone it down a little bit to the title that uh, that exists now, um, which I did. And he said, make sure you're 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 careful and that everything you you say is supported. But he said, what we have here is not a question of law, but a question of fact. He said the question of law is simple: you can't publish something that will endanger Jews. He said we have a question of fact: will this article p- published in First Things? Uh, will that uh, endanger people? And he said, "You've done your if you've done your homework." And at that time, I was at uh, up at Princeton in the Madison program, uh, run by uh, uh, Professor Robbie George up there. And you know, we had a collection of 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 scholars of religion and a lot of Catholics and Protestants. And I'd consulted with them on this, and I uh, I also had. I'd clerked for a well-known, uh, a well-known judge who's influential in these circles, uh, and I, I ran this by him. And I, I did my due diligence, and I asked my colleagues at Villanova, and they're all like, "Oh, this is this is not going to endanger. This is going to be interesting, and if anything, is going to explain something that might otherwise be be hard to hard to understand." And this rabbi said, "If you've done your diligence, and and this is a question of fact," and he said, "A professor who teaches at a Catholic uh, institution and is kind of involved in this discourse is better suited to reach a factual determination than than a rabbi who 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 doesn't." And therefore, he said, "If you've done that homework and you think you think it's okay, you can you can publish this." Uh, and so I did. And that was about uh, five or six years ago. And, um, you know, a lot have gone on in the world since then, but I don't think uh, even raising anti-Semitism, uh, but I don't think particularly tied to this this article and this text. So you're saying none of the people at Charlottesville had a sign. This is because of Chaim Simon's article in First Things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is I, what really got me out to the Charlottesville rally. Yeah, I, I didn't see that. <laughs> that, was not, that was not on the CNN reel. Uh, so, I mean, ha- ha- so... You're someone that's been uh, involved in ecumenical discussions. I mean, you clerked with uh, a Presbyterian 
right? Was he Presbyterian? Um, I believe so. Yeah, judge, His name yeah, is, uh, Utah? judge Michael McConnell, yeah, so, professor at Stanford. So you two were at Utah together, so it was like you both got to be Gentiles because that's what that's Mormons right. call. <laughs> right? right. It's not right. a Mormon, right? You're, but and you've you, you're at a Catholic university. I mean, what what have you learned from your own ecumenical dialogue with Christians? I mean, how how has that shaped your own work in, in your own life? That's interesting. Um, well, to state the obvious, it there's a lot, of, <laughs> you know, two Jews, three opinions, but there's a lot of different Christians um, who who come at this in in very different ways, and. I would even say, even as since I've been paying attention to this, um, the nature of Jewish Christian dialogue has changed. Um, you know, leaving out my own involvement, uh, but one of the things I found fascinating is that when I was growing up, you know, in the eighties and nineties, and first started paying attention to things, uh, Jewish Christian dialogue was largely confined to relatively liberal Jews and relatively liberal mainline Protestants and Catholics. Uh, and it was a project of a kind of, I think it's fair to say, a post-World War II liberal coming together uh, because of the horrors of, of Auschwitz. And what's changed, you know, it's hard to put a date on this, but certainly the last decade, is that there is at least a parallel uh, type of dialogue that I don't think really existed before between quite conservative Jews, and here I say like lowercase conservative Jews are typically orthodox, sometimes even variations of ultra-orthodox and um, very orthodox Christians, both Catholic and Protestant. And, you know, the aforementioned Robbie George at Princeton has been very much uh, at the forefront of this, uh, who come together to not talk comparative theology. They always say that's not what they're doing, and it's not. But you know, to come together on social issues, on questions more recently of religious liberty, of, 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 you know, opposition to gay marriage and various issues in the culture. And like you said, first things, uh, though I think it fair to say anchored certainly in a Catholic uh, tradition, has a fair amount of both uh, Orthodox Jewish uh, readers and, and writers. Yeah. And, and so, you know, so that, that's a big change. And I think a really interesting one to think about. Um, sort of the nature of ecumenical dialogue and the purposes of ecumenical dialogue. And it seems like there's even more comparative theology going on too among people that are 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 orthodox, you know, small o conservative, small c. I mean, politically they could be in different places in those. But you know, between Christians and Jews, we're we're, we're there's robust kind of theological dialogue going on too. Yeah. So so within orthodoxy, it's interesting because there's there's a long standing sense, and and some of this comes from a letter or, or guidance uh, given by uh, certainly one of the most well known and well respected orthodox rabbis of the 20th century, uh, Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, who who um, who basically I think this is in the sick. Wrote that you know we shouldn't kind of do comparative theology, um, and and I think for a while, because that's what was going on in these more you know liberal uh, interactions between Jews and Christians, and he was not into that. But he said, yeah, we could get together on social questions. But the nature of that dialogue uh, with you know amongst the Orthodox Jews who do it has expanded, and I think it's fair to say that you know there is a fair amount of. Comparative theology going on, though it's not quite labeled on that. I'd go further. The ability to say, I've always thought this, that the ability to say, well, you know, and, and this is how I wrote my piece in First Things, and, and maybe there's some, and some, in that article, I quote some earlier articles written by uh, Orthodox Jews in First Things about the death and trial of Jesus or about Jesus. And the ability to say, well, notwithstanding our disagreement about that issue, we can talk about X. It doesn't really matter what X is. But viewed from a historical perspective, that itself is a huge change because, you know, 300 years ago, you couldn't – what do you mean notwithstanding our, our differences about this? That is the issue. We can't go anywhere else. And I've just found it very interesting to see that we can now have a conversation that isn't going to talk about whether Jesus was or wasn't the Messiah. I mean, that's not happening or Jesus is or isn't the son of God. That's definitely not happening. What's happening is a bracketing of that conversation and saying we can, notwithstanding that we don't agree on that, we can move on. But that itself is a theological statement that you're able to bracket it and move on. And I think that's worth thinking about. Yeah, and, and have collegial relationships and be in, and be in shared institutions and things like this. Right, and I think it, that's it's remarkable. I mean, 
I think that's good. I think that, you know, 40 years ago, uh, I, 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 a person like me would not be at a place like Villanova. Certainly, you know, maybe, a, you know, they would have a Jewish professor teaching contracts and insurance law, but not sort of having discussions of Judaism and Jewish law as part of his uh, packet. And uh, in about a week or two, I'm going to a conference in Chicago co-hosted by uh, Notre Dame and Catholic Theological Union, I believe it's called in Chicago, uh, which is you know being run by um, in part or being spearheaded in part by you know an Orthodox Jewish woman, a professor who teaches at Catholic Theological, an Orthodox Jewish uh, man who teaches at Notre Dame, and their Christian counterparts, and they're coming together and doing this conference. Um, and it's not unusual for people to do uh, who who think about uh, Judaism and Jew, uh, Jewish law uh, to be anchored and and, and settled in uh, particularly Christian institutions. A friend at Emory, a friend at Pepperdine, um, and and I think that's that's in the law world. And I think as you move beyond the law world, I think that's that's also true. So so certainly we're in a different space. Can I, I want to read you something here. Um, this sure. is from uh, Pope Benedict's Jesus of Nazareth book, and one of the first five, and he's quoting from Jacob Neusner's book, A Rabbi Talks with Jesus. And he talks about how uh, he, how Neusner basically imagines himself listening to um, Jesus. You know, he's trying to put himself in the first century. And he says that he imagines, um, he says that, you know, let us try to draw out the essential points of this conversation with this rabbi. He imagines himself like, uh, you know, at the end of the day, listening to Jesus, finding the local rabbi somewhere in the Palestinian countryside. And Talking to this guy, um, he said, you know, let's draw out the essential point of the conversation. The essential point, it seems to me, is wonderfully, reve- is wonderfully revealed in one of the most moving scenes that Neusner presents in his book. In his interior dialogue, Neusner has just spent the whole day following Jesus, and now he retires for prayer and Torah study with the Jews of a certain town. In order to discuss with the rabbi of that place, once again, he's thinking in terms of contemporaneity across the millennia, all that he has heard. The rabbi cites from the Babylonian Talmud. Rabbi Simile expounded 613 commandments were given to Moses, 365 negative ones corresponding to the number of the days of the solar year, and 248 positive commandments corresponding to the parts of a man's body. David came, reduced them to 11. Isaiah came and, redu- and reduced them to 6. Isaiah came again, reduced them to 2. Habakkuk further came and based them on 1, as it is said, but the righteous shall live by faith. Neusner then continued his book with the following. So, the master says, is this what the sage Jesus had to say, and to which Neusner says, not exactly, but close. So what did he leave out? Nothing. Then what did he add? To which Neusner replies, himself. And he says, this is the central point where the believing Jew Neusner experiences alarm at Jesus' message, and the central reason which, why he does not wish to follow Jesus, but remains with the eternal Israel. Uh, the centrality of the I in Jesus' message gives him everything a new direction. Do you say, do, does that read right to you? Um, yeah. I, so I, I think that that is... Kind that that is so. It, let me just make sure I'm understanding it right. And that what he's saying is, I can a lot of what Jesus says is uh, echoed later or parallel or whatnot in Jewish sources. But the part that's not is the 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 tangency, if you will, of of Jesus and God, or or, or the way in which that works. And and I think that is certainly a fair reading, if not the only one. So if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, for example, um, variations of all of those things are found in rabbinic literature. Um, so I, you know, I, I think we talked about this before. I think it, there's, there's texts that go both ways. There's some texts in the Gospels where clearly Jesus is responding in, in, in contradistinction to a, an ethos that we find in rabbinic texts. And these are typically about the legal details of the Sabbath or about the laws of kosher or, or whatnot. But then there's a whole bunch of things. And again, the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is a lot of them. The rabbis in the Talmud also say, whoever looks at the pinky of a woman has committed adultery. Um, and, and, and things of that nature. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of corollaries there. But what is different, and I think this is what Neusser is getting, is that in Jewish theology, it's always going to be Jesus as a preacher, right? And sort of the message is, you know, sometimes more similar, sometimes more different. But, but the second you start getting into Jesus is the son of God or becomes God or anything like that, or inserts himself into the story, that's a place where, where the Jewish tradition just can't and doesn't go. And that, and that, so that is sort of where the, that's where the tradition, that's where the traditions differ, right? I mean, that's where you really have 
you yeah, know, I think the, that is like the, the 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 core point. Um, which is why I would say, as a Jewish reader, John is the gospel that is least relatable to. Whereas, you know, in different ways, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all more relatable because they stress that element more ambiguously, or certainly in the in the stories of Jesus's life. Um, you know, he sounds like something between a certain type of rabbi and maybe a little bit like Elijah and Elisha in the Bible who sort of go around and encounter different people and hear stories about them. But there's a lot of things that, that feel kind of familiar about that. And, but then there's these places where it's just very different. So I think if we think about the Sabbath stories, um, where, where the students of Jesus are out in the fields and, and they get kind of pushed by the Pharisees of why are they doing that? So it's that point where Jesus says, you know, you know, but the son of man is Lord over Sabbath where like the Jewish ear kind of like, what? No, no, that's, that's not, I don't know exactly what that means, but like, no, or I am Lord over the Sabbath or that's the language, not the, well, maybe it's okay. Cause they were hungry. Cause David did it when he was running away from, from Saul and he went to Abiatar. Like that's all, you know, if not, certainly not maybe the, the accepted halachic opinion, but that's in the mix, so to speak. But when you get to these, you know, the way news rephrase it, when, when he begins to insert himself into the story, uh, that's when that's when the, the kind of ears pick up and say, eh, I can't go there. Would this, would this be like if I was going to say, uh, let me tell you a story about a guy who can, you know, race locomotives and, and jump over uh, tall buildings with a single bound. And everybody's thinking I'm going to say Superman, and I say Heim Simon, right? Like, and then you're like, "Well, wait, okay." You're, 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 and it seems to me like that's something like what the gospelers are doing. That oftentimes they put Jesus in a place where he say, "Let me tell you," where, where it seems like the fill in the blank would be the God of Israel, and somehow Jesus gets inserted into that blank. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, and look, there are famous stories about, we don't call them crucifixion stories, uh, but they're martyrdom stories of people who are, I don't think it's the exact same dates as Jesus, but, you know, within 100 years, 150 years. So, you know, from our vantage point, the same period. Uh, Rabbi Akiva, famously, Rabbi Hanina ben Trajon, who are also by the Romans, who are, you know, murdered for their religion. And to, to kind of use a more modern take on it. Um, but, but those, you know, those become sort of paradigmatic martyr stories of, of the degree to which Rabbi Akiva believed in God. And even as they were, you know, tearing out his soul, he said, you know, he was happy that he was able to fulfill the mitzvah of loving God with all your heart and all your soul. But, but it never goes further than that, right? It's, it's okay. That's Rabbi Akiva. That's an amazing person, amazing role model, uh, an amazing, a sad story. Um, but, but that has no significance. In, in some model in a certain sense, but nothing about that's for our sins and that's a repentance for us or, 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 or nothing. That's kind of where that the line ends. You know, I, I'm intrigued is, is, you know, again, we've said that Passover and the Christian, you know, Holy Week are falling so close together this year. It is interesting that, that what Christians celebrate Easter is a Jewish belief, right? One that the idea of the resurrection starts, as I understand, in in the sort of exilic prophetic period as a metaphor for return from exile, right? I mean, it's you know this idea that, that you know Israel will be raised from the dead is it will come out, out out of exile and back to the promised land, and then by the time of Jesus, you've got Second Temple Judaisms, right? There are lots of Second Temple kind of prayers, but you have lots of them like the Pharisees who would believe. That that's going to happen to righteous Israelites at the end of history, right? That 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 there'll be a, an actual resurrection. That, that a metaphor for return to the land becomes something like an actual belief at the end of history. Yeah, that's certainly the Talmudic view. And and then you know, the, I guess the Christian idea is that well, what what Second Temple Jews thought would have many thought would happen to righteous Jews at the end of history happened to one vindicated Jew in the middle of history. And I, I don't think most Christians know that like the history of, 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 of resurrection is so deeply embedded in, in, in Jewish thought. It's, you know, it's not just a mere right. belief in the afterlife. It's not Platonism. It's not the immortality of the soul, but it's a different kind of view of uh, the God's future redemption, right? I think so. So I'm, you know, going to skate at the edge of my knowledge and in, 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 on those questions. So, 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say anything too definitive because that's, you know, I don't know so much the history. I mean, what is clear is that the Bible itself, certainly the, the Torah doesn't expressly talk about belief in the afterlife and the resurrection. And then in the rabbinic period, that is understood to be a, a core belief. There is one, that weird story about the witch of Endor though, that always gets me right. Where the witch of Endor can't conjures up Samuel's ghost for so right. That's such right. an interesting story. And, an interesting and he's just story. kind of sleeping. Like he's kind of like, yes, what, why yes. did you wake me up? That's right. But, you know, that never becomes the sort of, you know, anchor of, 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 you know, of, of the way it's discussed. And even that, I think that even that story in the, in the Jewish discussion of afterlife does not appear uh, very much. Um, that's not like what it's founded on, but, you know, the Mishnah says, um, there's not many things that you could do to be an outright heretic, but one of them is to not believe in triatametim in the resurrection. Now, whether that's the resurrection, the end of history, whether that's his soul lives on forever, all that's debated. Um, but but some kind of concept like that is certainly certainly there. Well, Chaim, I hope you have a great Passover, and thanks for writing this great piece and just for your body of work, which is uh, fascinating stuff. Sure. I, I always enjoy and, our conversation. You know, in Aramaic, uh, the way you say, you know, this always interests me. We'll end on this. That it's just always, you know, in English we use the word Easter, and maybe one day I'll, I'll understand the etymology of that. But but you know, uh, in Hebrew it's Pesach, and in Aramaic it's Pascha. Um, and of course, in Latin, um, it's known as Pascha. Now, the explanation I've heard is because that means passion, but but Pascha is the Aramaic word for Passover. Um, so that's I don't know enough to to kind of delve into that. But but they literally have the same name. Well, yeah, and I think for for the gospel writers, it is. I mean, the death and resurrection of Jesus are akin to um, the Exodus. I mean, in fact, I think in Luke's version of the Transfiguration story, Jesus actually, when Elijah and Moses disappear, it actually says he had to go to Jerusalem for his exodus. And so there's this kind of, there is this kind of linking of the, and of course, and of course the, the Pascal lamb, the Passover now, I, lamb. I, I, like, yeah. That's what jumps out at me. And that, that's of course this idea and important in the piece of Talmud we talked about, because it's a, it's a, it's an intra-gospel debate as to, right. If for Jesus to, to figure as a Paschal lamb, it's got to happen the day before Passover, what we call the 14th of Nisan or, or uh, which is when that was sacrificed. And that means that the, the last supper is not the Passover Seder, which happens the next night, but, but some gathering that happened before. And, uh, you know, this text we read clearly uh, is in the tradition that 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 this execution happened at the time the Passover sacrifice would have been offered. And that, I think, leads into the, the Christian imagery of, of Jesus as the Paschal Lamb. Well, Haim, have a have a great Passover. Are you celebrating it in in are you traveling? Or are you We're gonna you... be a little bit at home, a little bit of traveling, a lot of uh, cleaning kitchens and cabinets going on. Yeah, this is this is true. I mean I, I would think this is a big cleaning season, right? I mean yeah, you're, this, that's this, is a great thing after Passover, right? Your house is clean. Well, it's clean for Passover. Whether it's clean <laughs> is a different question. <laughs> I thanks. Well and I'll have you back on the podcast soon. All right, thank you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Haim for coming on the podcast, and thanks to you for listening. Until next time, my friends, fare thee well. <laughs>